0: On episode 64 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, how to identify leadership characteristics in children.
1: Here's the most important thing, getting to the root issue. What's the root cause of that problem? You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts.
0: On today's show, we're talking with Dr. Karen LeCompte, She's an associate professor of curriculum and instruction at Baylor University. She just wrapped up the iEngage Summer Civics Institute, a camp where incoming fifth through ninth graders learn about civics and leadership. She talks to us about how to identify and foster leadership traits in children. And now, here's Karen. <laughs> Welcome, Karen. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, thank you so much.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what school you're a part of and kind of your background a little bit?
1: Of course, I'm in the School of Education where I work as an associate professor and teach classes in social studies education and do research in civics education. I have the honor and privilege of being the faculty in residence for the leadership living and learning community which means that I get to live with 300 students along with my wonderful husband and dog and we work with students from all facets of the university on developing their leadership skills.
0: Wow so cool. you all live together I mean how, how does that work? That seems a <laughs> little intense for a learning environment.
1: <laughs> Well, we have a beautiful apartment that is a part of the Dawson building. And so we have students that live in Dawson and in Allen. Um, All the ladies live in Dawson and gentlemen live in Allen. And I work with a leadership executive team whereby we do programming specifically for leadership. And, and I teach also teach classes, a peer mentoring class for students who want to obtain a minor in leadership regardless of their major. So if they're a business major and they want a minor in leadership or a medical pre-med major, then I work with all kinds of students from various backgrounds.
0: And what's your background? How did you get started in this?
1: Well, it started a couple of decades ago for me when I was working on my master's degree at Sam Houston State University. I became very interested in teacher leadership. So what happens in schools when that extraordinary teacher rises to the top and gets others around him or her to join in on best practices and doing what's really good for students? So what are the characteristics of that person, and how do they become a leader in school? So I wrote my master's thesis on that, and then continued to research and study what it means to be a good leader, and now I get to have the honor of working with so many students who are interested in leadership.
2: So are you a Texan? I mean, is this home?
1: (laughs) Yes, Texas is home, but growing up... um, I guess I can attribute my um, interest in leadership to my father and my mother, who are extraordinary leaders in and of themselves. I grew up with a father who was a geophysicist, and wow. we lived all over the world, Australia, Canada, South America, and in each case, I became very interested in the community. And I suppose that gave me my social studies background because having the experience of living in so many places, in fact, we never lived in one place more than four years. Mm. And so that traveling experience gave me the idea that the world is full of diverse people and the world is full of leaders and followers. And so it takes um, characteristics to develop into a leader in very different contexts.
2: So now, how long have you been in the role that you're in with Baylor?
1: I've been at, with Baylor University for eight years. Prior to that, I was a clinical faculty member at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And prior to that, I obtained my doctorate at the University of Texas at Austin. So back home to Texas.
2: All right, good. <laughs> so you must be married to a good man if he's going to live in an apartment and 300 other <laughs> students at the same time. He must... Uh, He must like you.
1: (laughs) He does. He is an extraordinary partner who um, helps me in even the simplest and the most complex ways. And his name is Randy. Oh, good name. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very blessed to have him in my life. And we've been married for 20 years. Wonderful.
2: All right. So... Give me an idea, on a day-to-day basis, what does your day look like? What, Or a week, or month, or semester, I don't know how you put it together, but how do you work with students on leadership development skills?
1: I believe that leadership is developmental, it is environmentally led, even for young children, and it's also action-oriented. So I know that every day that I'm going to be waking up and working with students, and I've got lots to do, plenty to do <laughs> every day. So I start my day, I'm a very spiritual-minded person, so I start my day with some meditation and some biblical reading because I believe that Jesus was a servant leader. And so I ground myself in, the, in knowing that what I have to accomplish every day is something uh, related probably to servant leadership.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I also believe in transformational leadership. And that's the kind of leadership and which one brings out the best in others. Mm. So what can I do to understand the students that I work with in ways to bring out their strengths, help them recognize their strengths, in order for them to build confidence, to serve others well, and to do their job well. I'm also a very busy person. I believe in a healthy lifestyle. I have meetings, I teach during the school year on Tuesdays and Thursdays.
2: Oh, so you teach, what What do you teach?
1: I teach social studies methods. Okay. So every person in the School of Education who comes to Baylor and wants to be an elementary school teacher is going to take my class. And I take that responsibility very seriously because my responsibility is to the children and the families out there, Texas and anywhere else in the world, that those students are going to be the teachers of those young people. And so I want to instill in them the notion of best practices. Of leadership in schools and really understanding what's best for students on a day in and day out basis. So I teach two sections of that and then the fall semester I teach a peer mentor class and that means it's a class where of sophomores primarily who are going to be mentoring first-year students. And so I teach that mentorship class and how to mentor others effectively, how to help first-year students overcome obstacles such as, um, I don't know, being the master and commander of their own schedule for mm-hmm. the first time in their lives, yeah, being homesick for the first time in their lives, dealing with the academic rigor of Baylor University. For the first time in their lives, sure. and so that peer mentor class is one that's very, very important to me. It's a big class. This uh, coming semester, I have twenty-three students enrolled. So my day, getting back to your question, Chip, um, is teaching from eleven till about three fifteen, mm-hmm. and then I serve on several. I serve on committees such as the faculty senate, and then it's committee meetings after that.
0: Sure. So. What makes a good mentor? What is if, if someone's looking for a mentor, what makes a good mentor and what is something that mentors should provide to the people they're mentoring?
1: Well, mentors first and foremost should be good listeners. They should be people who are able to be empathetic to others without judgment. And so listening carefully, um, providing empathy. Mentors should also be leaders themselves. they gone on that journey before. So they, they understand, um, a traditional work is the hero's journey. And if you think about Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, they all had mentors.
0: Karate Kid. We use that one a lot. Yeah. We use
2: Mr. Miyagi and the (laughs) Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi was the, was the mentor, the coach, the guy that was there to help Daniel overcome the obstacles in his life. Yes. Exactly. Teach them skills.
0: (laughs) So the way we kind of heard about you was an article written that came after the I Engage Summer Civics Institute. Can you kind of explain to me what that is?
1: Of course. The I Engage uh, Summer Civic Institute is a camp. Okay. And it's a camp focused on civics education, civic practices, and it was co founded and developed by myself and my wonderful colleague, Dr. Brooke Blevins. And so we obtained funding from the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation out of Dallas about five years ago. And we started the camp and we really we didn't know what we were doing, mm-hmm. but we developed the camp over the years into a powerful experience for children by which they are able to, to develop their own leadership skills and capacity, particularly within doing good for a community, recognizing issues in the Waco community and acting on those issues. We want our youth from the camp to learn to be participatory citizens.
0: So what are the ages of the kids going through this?
1: They're rising fifth graders through rising ninth graders. We take students from the entire central Waco area. We send out flyers and notices by March 1st, and usually by March 3rd, the camp is filled.
2: Wow, Great. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. One of the questions that we talk about all the time here, and it kind of comes up, and that is, are leaders born? Are you born with specific skill sets that make you a leader, that, that make you rise to the top naturally? Or is leadership development, mentoring, those kind of things a skill that kids from kindergarten all the way through adulthood, is it something that you learn and that you can master and get better at?
1: I believe you cannot learn leadership from a book.
2: Amen. <laughs> I agree. You yes. can you can learn concepts and and be introduced to ideas from a book, but you got to apply it, correct?
1: Absolutely. So, young children may be born with skills that naturally lead them to a propensity for leadership, such as task-oriented or such as action-oriented. A young child who just sees a project through the end and doesn't quit or give up on it. It's also developmental. It's also environmentally based. So parents that recognize that their children may have this propensity and provide them with opportunities to develop those skills as leaders have a greater chance in letting those students develop into the kind of leaders that they want to be.
2: Yeah. My son, it's interesting, he shows no leadership capabilities in stuff he has no interest in. But if he's interested in something, all of a sudden his leadership skills blossom and he tries to get other people rallied around his vision and what he wants them to accomplish. And he, he sticks with it and he has a lot of grit and a lot of tenacity because he has a vision. He he wants something and he's trying to figure out a way to get other people to do it. But you know, when I have a vision for him, whatever it might be, <laughs> he, he lacks those leadership skills. So do you think it has something to do with figuring out what they care about finding out what they're passionate about and then developing the skills around that or do you try and teach those skills regardless if they've found their way in life yet because i know a lot of elementary age kids all the way up to college kids really don't know what they want to be when they grow up and so how do you develop that understanding that you know they got to have something to tie it to
1: i think that being passionate about a topic or an issue is key to the development of leadership skills. So just as you explained in that your son, if he's passionate about something, he goes after it and he wants to make a difference. Our camp is designed in the same way. The iEngage Civic Institute gives children choice about the topics that they wanna tackle in their community. We feel like that is a key point if you tell a young child that they must focus on recycling, but they're really interested in water pollution, then they're not going to be successful in pursuing a solution to that issue. So our campus is designed around letting students come to agree upon an issue, and that's called consensus building. Mm-hmm. So leaders do not always get to do exactly what they want to do, but they can come together with like-minded citizens and reach a consensus. We believe that in our country right now, we could use some more consensus building.
2: I agree. I absolutely <laughs> agree. And, and strong leaders build consensus and weak leaders, you know, don't care about consensus. They care about what they want.
1: And exactly. That's a poor exactly way to Exactly right.
2: Lead. Well, is there a standardized curriculum that you use? Is it kinda of reinvented every time you have a new class, kind of build on their skills. What what's the framework? Whether it be with the students that you live with, the college students or or the summer camps, is, is there a core methodology, I guess, is what I'm asking.
1: Um, there is a core methodology, and and we have borrowed from several sources. Generation Citizen gives us some excellent resources. John Northhouse writes a book about leadership. Tony Dungy writes a book about leadership in which it's based in the football realm. Mm-hmm. And so we have borrowed um, ideas and notions from those resources and really built our own curriculum. And our own curriculum is this we first identify the issue. We have leaders come to our camp. I do the same thing in my class. Mm -hmm. Um, My students identify issues that first-year students may have. We spoke about those briefly, Mm -hmm. homesickness, um, academic rigors, things such as that. In our I Engage camp, students um, focus on issues that they care about. It could be animal shelters. It could be poverty in their community. It could be drug abuse in their community. All of these things happen right here in Waco. Mm -hmm. And these young students want to do something about it. So the curriculum begins, as I said, with recognizing an issue, getting down to a focus issue. So you can't solve poverty for everyone everywhere. You have to narrow it down into topics that are attainable. And then here's the most important thing, getting to the root issue. What's the root cause of that problem? So even though, for example, you may be tackling poverty or working with poverty in young students, what's the root issue of that poverty? Is it lack of education? In Waco, Texas, our students have discovered it's the lack of transportation. All of the jobs are on the south part of town. All of the affordable housing is on the north and east part of town. Hmm. So transportation prevents families from getting back and forth to jobs that can be affordable for their lifestyle. So once we get to the root issue, it's kind of thinking about it like an hourglass. So issue, focus issue, what is the root cause? And then from there, you've got to identify who are the big players, who, who are the stakeholders in this? Is it the city council? Is it leaders in our community who can make a difference? And then what are your tactics going to be for making others aware of your issue? So are you going to communicate through a website? Are you going to build a flyer? Are you going to hold a town meeting? let me go back to the example of the college freshman. Are you going to have one-on-one meetings with them to help them solve a problem? Are you going to help them negotiate places in the university they can go to help solve their problems? So again, the curriculum is that. It's recognizing the issue, focusing, root issue, major players, and then tactics for information.
0: So how did they resolve the transportation issue? Did they did they see any sort of action on that?
1: Esmeralda Hudson is the secretary for our city council. So they wrote a letter to her and contacted her and had the issue put on the city council agenda.
2: Nice. Excellent. Leaders have to take action. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of sitting around and talking about ideas. That's true. That's what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, That's reserved for us. (laughs) We talk about ideas.
0: So if you have a child, a kid, you know, we were talking beforehand. I've got a son that's going into fourth grade. How do you foster some of those leadership traits in them and how do you develop them from an early age?
1: I would suggest that the first thing you do is encourage them to be task and action oriented and complete a job, which is not always easy. You know, young children, my son, for example, wanted to play baseball and they wanted to play soccer and then commit to an activity and see it through. The second is being willing to be empathetic to others and recognizing that you can have some things the way you want, but you don't get everything the way you want.
0: That's so hard with kids, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It oh, is yeah. very
1: hard with kids. Learning to negotiate, learning to... Deliberate respectfully, to have conversations that are productive and not um, forceful in nature. Some of my most, my mentor leaders were people that were really transformational in me. They let me do the work, and that was really important. Other leaders that have not been so great in my experience were leaders that were very authoritarian, who told me what to do told me I had to do this or I had to do that. So finding your path yourself is great empowerment. And then also, I think, finally having the idea that you are a servant to others, that you can't be the leader all the time. You have to be willing to get in there and do the work alongside one another. I bet you guys work alongside one another, elbow to elbow. That's
2: true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the model that we teach—the control and demand—which is what you're telling, you know, telling people—the control and demand only works to a certain extent. You're, you're not going to get people to thrive past compliance. It's that discretionary effort. How do we get people to give more than they have to to keep their job or get something done? And that's tied to something that they want to do—that vision, that you know, something that they want. We teach that high-performance leadership starts with a vision. What is it that you want? And identify the root cause. Why why don't you have it? And then put a plan together. So what are we going to do to get it? We identified that transportation is a problem. Okay, so what what's the plan? How are we going to do it? And the people that follow through and can rally others behind them and get them to follow them, not because they're told to or paid to, but because they want to is the essence of real, true leadership. Now the question then becomes, you know, Hitler was a leader, but I think all of us would agree that, you know, his vision and passion, what he thought was important, ended up being a terrible, terrible thing for the world. So how do we help leaders make decisions around things that help the world instead of using their abilities to selfish means, you know, that's a Mm -hmm. dilemma.
1: That's a great question, Chip. I think that we help children see that the end goal is communities where people live and thrive with one another. Robert Putnam wrote a book a couple decades or so ago called Bowling Along, and it was a book about the lack of social capital in our communities, and we are still experiencing that today. Hitler was extremely successful but devastating for the world because he convinced people to believe in a cause. Well, if you can convince people to believe in a bad cause, certainly you convince them to believe in a good cause that helps others. So um, making Waco beautiful, prosper Waco, improving our animal shelters, for example. We had a young student, and this is is a great story. We did a project like this at her school, and she was concerned about the rate of euthanasia or killing animals in our animal shelter. She found the root cause. The root cause was was there's not enough money to help take care of these animals, and people weren't adopting them. So she borrowed a camera from her school, and she went to the animal shelter, and she dolled them up. I mean, she did... (laughs) She did Photoshop on them and put them in, put the puppies and the kittens and cute little outfits and popcorn boxes and pretty like glamour
2: shots for dogs, right? Glamour
1: shots for dogs. <laughs> okay. And people all over the United States began adopting animals from the Waco Animal Shelter. Wow. And so she made a huge difference. Another story for the good of the community. We have a student that just graduated from our I Engage program who wanted to play football at her school. And, of course, girls are not allowed to play on the football team. So because of I Engage, she learned to write a petition and petition her school board and get them to allow her to play on the football team. They had to deliberate about that, and she's still at that same school. And I don't know if she plays football with them anymore, but she's definitely involved in women athletics and brought attention to the fact that women are discriminated against in the athletic realm. Yeah.
2: yeah. Interesting. You know, going back one to the root cause, I watched a uh, interesting documentary one time about animal shelters and the amount of euthanization that happens and millions of animals and are put down. And, and so they did the root cause analysis and they kept digging, digging, digging to figure out what the problem was. And one woman identified that the real problem was is, that people would come and adopt animals to go home or they'd buy them or they'd be given animals and the animals weren't trained properly. They would go to the bathroom in the house. They would bark. They would chew up stuff, all kinds of stuff. So they were frustrated with the animals. So they would dump them at the, you know, on the roadside or take them to a humane society, something like that and get rid of them. And the root cause wasn't about people adopting animals. It was the root cause was the people The dogs and the cats are not the problem. The people are the problem. And what the root cause was is that the people themselves didn't know how to take care of the animal and train the animal to a point where it didn't frustrate them to a point that they returned the dogs. So they started a whole campaign on training owners how to take care of their animals and keep the bad behavior from happening. And they saw a massive reduction in people surrendering their animals. Again, one yeah. more level of that root cause analysis. Is it the dog's fault, the cat's fault? No, it's the owner's fault because they don't know how to stop the bad behavior, which is what causes them to return the animals.
0: I no. think you'll still have some frustrated cat owners. that still don't do what you want them to do.
2: <laughs> no, they have their own mind. Perhaps
1: uh, that's just the nature of cats. That's yes, true.
0: Absolutely. I, think, I would think also like people, they want the designer dog and they get the designer dog and then they don't know how to take care of it, kind of like you're saying. And then they say... Oh, never mind, I'll I'll give that back. Like we were at the animal shelter here in Waco and they had a lot of pit bulls. And they said it's very unfortunate people get these pit bulls because it's kind of a cool thing to do. And then they realize that they can be a, a dangerous dog if they're not trained properly. Mm-hmm. And then they surrender them. And so looking at a root cause like that, you you want this specific kind of dog because it's cool, but then you don't realize that the puppy will grow up to be a giant dog that's hard to feed or hard to train that needs to go to the
2: vet and all kinds of stuff yeah Yeah, there's all sorts of root causes probably it's a long commitment absolutely (laughs)
1: indeed indeed interesting and and related to that same story we had another uh, group of students who were concerned about animal shelters And their solution was to hold donation sites at PetSmart and other commercial businesses around town. They discovered that the root cause was, you know, these animals came in traumatized. You know, they've, they've been on the streets. They wanted help for the animals, and so they decided to set up donation sites. Another group of students did a wonderful thing with animals. They wanted local veterinarians, um, so customers, people that were animal lovers, donate a part of their fee for the veterinarians to help with training of owners and to help with training of the animals themselves to better adjust them to their new homes.
2: So one of the things that we do here at 360 Solutions is we have a program that we work on called Charity Champions, where we match for-profit leaders and nonprofit leaders together, and we work on leadership development skills. In your opinion, is there different skills that need to be developed for people that are in the for-profit world that need to work on Again, profitability and building a company and building large teams and so on and so forth versus people that run community-based organizations or nonprofits or ministries. is it, Do you see it as a different type of leadership or similar?
1: I think it's a very similar kind of leadership. Uh, certainly, profit organizations are focused on making money. That's their bottom line. Nonprofit organizations are focused on improving communities and the healthiness of people, and animals in those communities. And so I think your bringing together of those two entities is absolutely brilliant, and I commend you for that. So
2: thank you. We, uh, with a bank here in town, we work with Baylor and we give an award out at every home football game. We pick a nonprofit and we give them recognition, and they get up on the big screen. And then I do a leadership development program six months out of the year for all the nonprofit leaders here in town. And it's been extremely, extremely rewarding getting. The for-profit community and the non-profit community together to talk about shared values. What What is it we're trying to build in the community in which we live in? How do we take care of our people? How do we become more profitable? That concept of the double bottom line, you know, we need to make profit, but we need to have a purpose as well. And it's sort of we,
1: a double helix, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
2: Yeah. I think more communities are seeing it, but they maybe aren't implementing it as well as they should, because I do see the advantage is massive for both for and nonprofit organizations, if they work together.
1: Anytime that you can get people to uh, come together in positive ways and empathize with one another, um, going back to this notion of social capital, you're going to do nothing but improve conditions for everyone in the community. Yeah,
0: absolutely. it sounds similar to the goal of the I Engage Yes. Uh, because you're trying to engage with the community. Really, the result is a better community, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah,
2: Wonderful. Exactly. So what does this school look, year look like for you? Is it Similar to past, are new students showing up here fairly soon?
1: They are packing as we speak. I'm Ah, sure they are getting ready to move in, and so uh, the coming year is going to be an exciting one for Baylor. I'm thrilled with our new president, our new provost. Um, He's an interim provost, but he has been one of my mentor leaders for the past decade, Michael McClendon, and so we're very excited to have him. He's a man of great integrity, of great energy, and he's also very much what I like to call a transformational leader, and that he wants to see others thrive and grow. He is not a leader that says, do this, do that, do this, although he has the skills to, of course, manage the day-to-day activities of the university as a provost, but he's also he's a cheerleader. He wants us to do our best, and he undoubtedly has provided Dr. Blovens and I with the support mechanisms to continue our I Engage endeavors. We've applied for funding for 2018. I have my classes to teach on leadership and these wonderful students who are begging me for independent studies with them, but the key word in independent study is independent.
2: Well, you know what? If you have any that want internships, you send them to us because we <laughs> have had over the years, many Baylor interns work here and we'll give them all kinds of independent things they can work on. <laughs> I, pr- I promise you.
1: That sounds wonderful. Yeah.
2: A lot of our listeners out here, we always ask one main question and, and that is, have you ever worked for or know an extraordinary leader or have a story about someone that you've worked for that has shown some extraordinary leadership. Or on the flip side, maybe you have a story of the opposite of that and, and how that impacted you in your career, in your personal life, whatever it might be.
1: Well, I think I've had, um, like many people who study and, and work with leaders, I've had several people in that. I mentioned my parents, uh, my dad in particular, O.L. Davis Jr., O.L. Davis Jr. was my my mentor professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and he would not give up on me. (laughs) And to this day, he still follows me. He is retired, and he lives with his um, wonderful wife in Dallas, but he would not quit. When there were things that I, writing my dissertation, for example, I submitted the first chapter, and I said, Dr. Davis was there one complete sentence that you even liked? (laughs) And he said, Karen, writing a dissertation is a learning endeavor. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I won't quit. And then you won't quit either. He explained to me that this dissertation process was a journey and that he was going to see me through. Well, not only did he see me through the dissertation, he mentored me through my first job. He mentored me and now in my second job and at every juncture in my career he has always been there to give me good solid advice.
2: So commitment, he was very committed. Very committed. And tenacity, to, <laughs> to your success and as well as his, but to your success. That's wonderful. Well, I truly appreciate you cutting out some time in your day to come over to the studio and to be on our podcast. Hopefully we can have you back again soon. But if anybody's listening to this, they want to know more about your camp next summer for maybe they have kids that are listening or... Uh, a little bit more about you personally. How would someone get in touch with you?
1: Well, you can f- certainly find me on the web faculty webpage at Baylor University, but you can also email me. I'm happy to answer questions about leadership. Again, I have 300 students who are interested in leadership, so I won't send all 300 your way for internship, <laughs> but I will send some your way. We well, would love it. If you if there are others out there that believe that they have a place for internships and and students that they would like to work with, I would welcome their contact and welcome their partnership. Um, my name is Karen K A R O N underscore LeCompte L E C O M P T E at Baylor dot edu Bears. All right, <laughs>
2: Sikkim Bears, correct. Well, Randy will put all the show notes and everything on there so you can go to our website and and get all your contact information karen again thank you so much for being on our podcast today it was enlightening and hopefully we can have you back again
1: i enjoyed it very much thank you for having me all right.
0: thanks for listening to the high performance leadership podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review us every little bit helps Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at HPL underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.